0: Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm Logan Finney. Idaho is unique in many ways across the country, but one Particular area of policy uh, that the state has struggled with over the last 50 years is civil commitments for uh, people who are mentally ill to the point where they are potentially dangerous to themselves and others. Uh, Reporter Audrey Dutton with ProPublica published a story this week about Idaho's process for civil commitments for people who are deemed dangerously mentally ill, and she's here to talk to me about that story this week. Audrey, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So this is a fantastic, very well-reported, very long story that you published in ProPublica. Can you, just to get us started here, What is Idaho's process for these civil commitments and how is it unique compared to the rest of the country?
1: So uh, pretty much every state has a civil commitment process. Uh, In Idaho, there's one subset of civil commitments that can end up in the program that I wrote about and that's people who have been deemed dangerously mentally ill. Uh, And it takes a court process to have that designation. Uh, But Idaho's law says that if you are civilly committed, and dangerously mentally ill that you are placed essentially in a program that's housed in the Idaho Department of Correction. So you go to a prison facility.
0: And these are these are people who specifically have not been charged with a crime. These are people who are just suffering from a mental health issue?
1: Correct. So they haven't been charged with a crime or convicted of a crime. Uh, it's about a half dozen people a year uh, fall under this category.
0: And so what is unique about this category of people with mental illnesses? What, what, what is preventing these people from being placed somewhere like the, the facility in Orfino or State Hospital South in, in Blackfoot?
1: Right, so in these cases, these are people whose illness can prompt them to become violent um, or they're violent in reaction to their illness. So for example, they might um, have a specific delusion that makes them think that people are trying to infect them with something or trying to um, insert a chip in them or that they're aliens who must be destroyed. Um, Some kind of delusion that causes them to react violently. Um, when for example a phlebotomist comes in or someone comes in to give them an injection um, at these hospitals so uh, in general um, that's how you might see someone end up in this program the way that Idaho is unique is that we house these folks in a prison cell Um, so We are one of only two states that does this, the other state being New Hampshire, Um, and New Hampshire has broken ground and is now building um, their own secure mental health facility so that they can phase out putting these folks in prison.
0: Is that what the majority of other states do? Do they they have a a separate standalone facility for these type of commitments?
1: Sure, if you've ever heard of a forensic hospital, that's
0: commonly what it's called. And so why does Idaho not have a facility like this? You get into it in the story, so I'll give you the opportunity to talk about it.
1: Uh, Golly, it's been um, decades of efforts to get something like this built. There have been many attempts. Um, Often what ends up happening, going back to the 1970s, is that What's currently happening is presented as temporary, while the state works on a more permanent solution to help these people be housed in a facility where uh, they are getting the kind of care they need in the kind of setting and with the kind of staffing that they need. Um, So there have been efforts in the mid-2000s early 2010s uh, and then just again this this last legislative session the governor had proposed funding for a secure forensic mental health facility.
0: That didn't seem to go anywhere though, did it?
1: It did not. The uh, Joint Finance Appropriations Committee decided not to take it up um, and it appears as though the governor is going to um, try again uh, because he, um, put forward as the governor's initiative is how it was labeled. Um, funding for uh, 25 million dollars for a, a facility and the permanent building advisory council. Um, they did give their approval, so it could move into the budget and then potentially sure,
0: go be before taken effect like yep. any other any other sort of budget mm-hmm. measure. So in the interim, since. Uh, the early '70s, in this this short window where this has been an issue, um, folks are being placed in this particular part of Idaho's prison system. You visited uh, this this facility and spoke with at least one of these inmates. Is is that right?
1: Right, and he was a patient, not an inmate. Thank you, um, thank you for that. So yes, and and I just talked with him through his his door. Um, I mean, they're they're steel doors with a small glass window, or I don't even know if it's glass or if it's plexiglass, but um, these are small cells. They are the size of a parking space, okay? They have um, a bed or in one case, you know, kind of a concrete slab on the floor, um, a toilet, a sink that's attached to the wall. Um, They have a small window looking out onto the prison yard um, and that's about it. So one of the things that is, that is interesting about this unit is the corrections officers who serve as security for the unit, um, they work for, for IDOC, for Idaho Department of Correction, and they kind of self-select. They opt in to being on this team, and a lot of them that I talked with, um, they have uh, family members with mental illness or they've had experience, um, in their lives with dealing with patients who are kind of like this, um, one the one social worker who I quote in the story, she had no experience with this population, um, and she became so passionate about it after starting as a psych tech in the unit that she went back to school and got a master's degree in social work so that she could um, kind of specialize in their care. So, so it is it's it's. It's kind of unique in that way, um, in terms of the staffing. But it is a prison, and you, there's no doubt about it when you go in there that it is a prison facility. It's designed for incarceration.
0: Sure, like like we've said, it's these are patients, not inmates, but they are literally being held in a prison. That seems like there, maybe some civil rights issues there.
1: Right. So. Uh, What's interesting is when I was first starting on this uh, project, this story, uh, I went down to the State House to find out what the history was of this law. Went back all the way to the 1970s and found legislative minutes that showed when Idaho was considering creating what we now have, there were mental health advocates speaking up, saying, "We think this is a civil rights issue. We don't think it's appropriate care for people in the first place, but we think it's a civil rights issue to be putting them under corrections as opposed to under a healthcare agency, for example." Um, and uh, you know, even even now, I talked with uh, the an attorney who specializes in civil rights in prison with the ACLU and he called this beyond shocking. And he essentially said uh, Idaho would be wise to find a replacement for this, to build a replacement for this before it gets sued um, because it's that that concerning. I talked with another um, attorney who specializes in mental health, civil rights, Um, And she said it could be potentially an ADA violation, Americans with Disabilities Act violation, because it is segregating people with a mental health disability and treating them differently.
0: Whole bundle of issues there. Um, And this, formally, this is known as the Idaho Security Medical Program. Um, We were talking a little before this, and before it was known as the Idaho Security Medical Facility, even though there wasn't a facility for the program at the time, so can you tell me a little bit more about these various legislative attempts to address this issue and why they've stymied out so often?
1: Yeah, so it started back in the early 1970s. The state was trying to figure out where to house patients and then also people who have been charged with the crime but are unable to um, stand trial uh, before getting getting treatment. And one of the uh, efforts to address this was to just change the name of the law from the Idaho Security Medical Facility to the Idaho Security Medical Program because there was no facility. Um, Former Senator Joe Stegner in the uh, mid-2000s he was very interested in mental health care and uh, served on the Health and Welfare Committee. thought that was not adequate. He wanted to build a facility, uh, and he got considerable buy-in for that plan. Um, He eventually, Governor Otter, put in his State of the State that he was going to fund this facility, um, and it was going to be quite large. And the way that Joe Stegner remembers it is the facility was going to be um, out of sight of the prison even. It would be on state land, but it would be, and it would be kind of near where the correction facility is now on Pleasant Valley
0: Road. The complex out south of Boise.
1: Right, but it wouldn't be in sight of it. He wanted to make it clear that this is not an incarceration. You are not being punished. Um, And that was in 2008. So, of course, 2008 was not very friendly to, Finance <laughs>
0: Folks might be familiar with yeah, or...
1: in general so, um, so I talked with Governor Otter and he said that you know at first when they were attempting to build this facility and there was even there was an appropriation for it there was um, a bonding authority um, he said there were some arguments about where to put it and that um, when those kind of disputes got settled we were in the middle of a financial crisis, and he said, we just didn't have enough meat on our ribs to be able to pay for this. And that seems to be what has happened a lot. <laughs> um, every time there's been kind of an effort to get something built, it ends up not being the priority.
0: Sure. And. With the recent budget surpluses that Idaho has seen, it's been a very concerted effort on the part of lawmakers and the executive branch to be investing in these long-term projects, infrastructure like buildings and roads. And it this was brought up last year in the legislative session, right? and didn't didn't go anywhere.
1: It didn't. Uh, and from my interviews and conversations with folks who were, you know involved in uh, that process, it sounds like, it became, you know, one of the casualties of kind of fighting over higher education funding.
0: Yeah, there's there's only so much, so many bills you can run in the legislative session.
1: True, yeah.
0: And so in in the interceding time, while folks are under the care of IDOC, right, they're under the corrections umbrella, not the health and welfare umbrella, Is this unit somewhat a standalone unit within the prison system, or are they regularly interacting with people who have been charged with a crime and in the prison system? What sort of internal barriers are there in in this program?
1: That's a great question. Some of the barriers are physical and some of them are imaginary, Um, because the the unit itself is within a three unit kind of block of the prison. Um, The other two units are exclusively inmates, so these are people who have been convicted, but they also have mental health issues, and they need that that level of care. Uh, the unit that we're talking about now has people who've been civilly committed and deemed dangerously mentally ill, as well as some people who have been charged with a crime but are not able to stand trial because Idaho does not have um, a, what's called an insanity defense. So those folks need to have treatment before they can even stand trial because they may not even understand the charges against them.
0: Sure, restoring some of the competency so that they're aware of what they're being charged with and what the possible consequences are.
1: Right, so that's um, usually a handful of the folks who are in this unit. And then you may also have the um, occasional inmate who needs that very, very highly secure level of care.
0: Talking of just the civilly committed population, how many people are we talking about here in a given year? What's what's the rough number?
1: About half a dozen. Um, it varies, but half a dozen is, is roughly for the past several years what we've seen.
0: So there is one possibly clear pathway to address this. Lawmakers could pony up the money and start building a facility. Are there any additional policy changes that would be recommended to um, kind of Stave off the the uh, liability that the state is currently you know there's risk that the state could be sued over these civil rights issues. Are there additional policy changes aside from just building a building that could help address this?
1: I don't know of any. Um, when I've talked with people the the only thing that has come up and and this has kind of been a reason for stalling the construction of a facility before is that Idaho needs to invest better in community mental health care so that people don't get to the crisis point in the first place, so that they, they don't end up in psychosis. Um, so the Bazelon Center, for example, I talked with, um, with their legal director and she said, building a facility isn't exactly what we need. We need community-based care to make sure that people stay well. Of course, that takes a lot more uh, financial commitment.
0: Certainly, and the state has been doing some things moving that direction with things like the Idaho Behavioral Health Council and and associated investments in the last couple years.
1: Yeah, and the Behavioral Health Crisis Centers also. Those have been a big big push.
0: All right. Well, Audrey Dutton with ProPublica, thank you so much for your reporting and for coming on the show to talk about it.
1: Thanks so much, it was great. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.